Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles' leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. In this episode, I spent an evening chatting with the women of Claret Cup at the Los Angeles Brewery Artist Colony. Claret Cup was co-founded by Donatella Kuzma and Boyana Banyaz, two architects who bonded over a love of Los Angeles, a shared value that architecture does not only serve its private owners, and a desire to work outside the normal bounds of a traditional practice. Their work crosses over to disciplines like fashion, graphic design, food making, and community building, and to me, displays a sensitivity for creating multi-sensorial experiences. We're also joined by Marcy Krant, a native Angelino who works with Boya and Donna. Marcy does not have an architectural background, but comes from the fashion industry, and we hear her fresh perspective on what it's like for her to work at Claret Cup. And just a note to make it a little bit easier for you as a listener to tell who's who, Marcy is going to speak first, and she has an American accent. Donatella speaks second, and she has a Sicilian accent. And Boya jumps in after, and she speaks with a Hungarian accent. I hope that's helpful for you. We'll dive right into the conversation with Marcy talking about how she met Boya and Donna. Boya and I are neighbors. Oh. Mm-hmm. We share a backyard. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of in between careers trying to figure out what I, what I want to do. And I was like, oh, I like them. <laughs> I was like, I like what they do. And they had invited me to their studio in Chinatown once. And I just was like, so fascinated. They were doing this project for, um, for the Red Cat. No, no, the Batusha. Oh, that was for, um, oh no. For the, a mentionable That's symposium. right. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. That yeah, one. That's What's right. Batusha? <laughs> they made up this whole word. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a really cool thing. So, this is called Batyusha. And it is basically, um, it is mixing two words, a Sicilian word with an Hungarian word. Oh. But basically, it's the same that is in Japanese. It's called uh, furoshiki. Oh, it's basically okay. like a, yeah. a piece of cloth yeah, that yeah. we fold that, in many ways. Mm-hmm. But we have the same in the peasant tradition of Sicily to, to kind of like wrap food to go for like the workers and they have the same, same in, Hungarian. Uh, in Hungarian. So yeah. we were talking about that and mm. say, okay, how do you say it in, in Hungarian? And it is... Batu. Batu? Batu, yeah. Oh, and in Sicilian, it's Trusha. 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 Okay. So, Batusha. <laughs> <laughs> so we made this object commissioned by the Unmentionable Symposium that was uh, organized by Annie Chu and oh, yeah. uh, Ed Peterson from uh, Woodbury University and a few others that I'm sure I'm forgetting. And so Marcy came along and (laughs) And I saw like the intricate work they were doing and I was just so fascinated. I was like, oh my God. I was like, I thought they were architects. Right. Like, wait, but they're doing other things. And so (laughs) I just like thought about it for a long time, you know, and and then I wasn't, wasn't totally motivated just because I was trying to leave my career, you know? So I was like, what do I do? Where do I go? Wasn't sure, you know? So I was like, you know what, while I think, why don't I go and see if I can be of any help? You know, and so I reached out to them and they were like, yeah, come in, let's, let's see what we can do. And so that's how I came in, I came on board. That's amazing. So what career did you leave? The fashion industry. Oh, yeah. It's related. Yes. Yeah. On the other side of the table. Meanwhile, when she came in, we saw her and we, we saw like a light. And when she started talking to us, we're like, yeah, we don't know anything. We need this person, you know, because we have several passions, but we also understand that we need um, to collaborate with people who know what they're doing. Marcy brought a vision for how do you um, organize the process of production? Like, for instance, where do you source your materials? Well, you know, business cards from the pile. <laughs> you know, one felt place, and she has 10. You know, she finds them and organizes them. What do we do? What do we specialize? The samples, you know? It's, so for us, it was like more a gain <laughs> for us. It just brings an amazing perspective it's mutual, you know like it's just so nice like i want to push papers i want to go to pull permits so teach me to do that and they're just like really you would be you'd be into that i'm like absolutely oh it's cool it looks cool from this side it looks super cool so yeah just a fan i have never heard anyone say it looks cool to pull <laughs> permits like if anything people have 
done that with me and been like, that was painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I did it once and I was like, I'm going to, I was so determined. I was like, I don't want to let them down. And then I got there and I was like, so excited, so eager. And the guy starts talking to me and I was like, I'm in over my head. I was like, this guy is saying things I don't know, but I was like writing everything down. Uh I was like texting them. I was just like, he's saying this, he's saying that. But this is how I started when when I first started to work here for an office. My English was very bad. And in Italy, I was working for a design company. They did um, competitions, international competitions, or no permits pulled. So I was working in the design team, and this is all I knew. And then um, when I got my first job here for Tracy Stone, she immediately just threw me in the... I remember they were asking me for the the number for the fireplace. And I was like, what? So I was, and I didn't understand the spelling neither. Tracy <laughs> <So, laughs> speaking English. So I, I was a disaster. I would get lost on my way there and oh, back. No. It would take me like four hours. To do <laughs> and I didn't have a car, so I was drawing Tracy's car too. It was just insane. But somehow... <laughs> I made it. (laughs) But, you know, we thought, this is difficult, but if anyone can pull this off, it's Marcy. (laughs) (laughs) And you did pretty well. By the time she came back, like two, three hours later, she was saying some of the lingo we were like okay you know when you're when you're not in it you're just like yeah this sounds fun and I I like it wow no I have a thousand times like respect for you (laughs) not like coming from any training and being like yeah I'll do that yeah and just like figuring that out that's amazing well you know I think at some point that's the beauty of getting older I think as you're aging you start shedding all that stuff everybody starts somewhere um and being dumb or not knowing isn't being dumb you know like it's just not knowing you know so so I think people if you preface it you know like usually I can preface it and say you know I'm new to this I'm not really sure what I'm doing so pardon you know my lack of knowledge and people are really nice but also you know as an office and having worked Mm -hmm. in another office before you learn that architecture is such a complex endeavor really and you have to have talent and experience in a lot of different things and interest in a lot of different things. Almost nobody has it all. So I think that's where really the partnership and the office comes into play, where people can just work to their strengths as well as learn new things. So it's not just to pigeonhole people to do what they're good at, but it's just no one's going to be good at all of it. You know, Marcy definitely has so much to offer to us in terms of your strengths and, you know, your approach to organization and, you know, relationship with people outside, which I think architects often find it hard to relate to people who weren't trained like us. And you really end up kind of working yourself into a bubble. Our practice has been working hard to kind of get out of that as much as possible and relate and kind of come back into the world, you know, of everybody else. Why don't we start kind of at that beginning of that collaboration? Mm -hmm. Um, So you're partners and you compiled a list of keywords together (laughs) to define yourselves as architects. Yeah. So, so one thing to say is that there are, we call them word pairs, Uh two words. So prima donnas, but we spell it prima Donnas, and we'll talk to that. Okay. Border hopper, designaholic, detail diver, idea instiller, dream distiller, food pornographer, Los Angeles, space teacher, tool totter, <laughs> and beauty scrounger. <laughs> and, you know, it, it kind of betrays our being European. We like puns and alliteration and those kind of things. Good part yes. of our partnership is like we get each other humor, uh-huh. you know, and um, yeah, we like things that come in pairs. <laughs> Leave it at that. But yeah, basically, this started a long time ago. It was in, um, in this converted garage in Angelino Heights, which became then our first, first office. And uh, it wasn't in the evening. Boya used to leave her work and come over. And we would have wine, like often happens. And we were talking about architecture, which often happens, too. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was recounting to her this episode. Um, I was at dinner. They were not all architects. And one of them, I think they were in, like, business or something. 
um, heard me calling bad architecture a development uh, in downtown on Figueroa. Oh, yeah. The, like, I know which one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The advertisers like Mediterranean right, right. inspired or something. <laughs> and I may have gone to the extent of saying that that was represented the failure of architecture as a discipline as we know it, that it was bad architecture, that was a fake, a shame for the city. Like I went on on my ramble. <laughs> she heard it a few times. And so this person um, sincerely could just not understand what I meant by bad architecture. They were saying, well, it's a building. It doesn't leak, I remember them saying. <laughs> Therefore, leak. some architect designed it or helped build building it. So it is architecture. What do you mean by bad architecture? So with that, so when I was selling Boyer, we started to talk about this kind of misconception of what the discipline is for architects versus non-architects. And so we started to jot down this list at the beginning, jokingly. And I remember Boya said, oh, architects are seen as this bespectacle lookers, but it has this like very thick uh, black-rimmed glasses, glasses, glasses. Huh? <laughs> who maybe <laughs> makes like a smart-ass comment at a party and, you know, non-architects just look down at them like, what the hell is this guy doing or girl? Anyways. So we started this list, but then as we, as we added more and more words, then almost became more introspective in a way. We started layering meaning. And all of a sudden, we were talking about us and how do we want to contribute to the practice. So the first word, the prima donna, is obviously because architects are seen as this prima donnas, but also because it was two of us, and we, it gave us the possibility of not taking ourselves serious but also take the profession very seriously and start understanding how do we want to position ourselves in the practice. Yeah, and by this time, I mean, we both had probably like 10, 15 years of experience mm -hmm. working in the profession. So it wasn't like we're, we were totally new to it. We had all the gripes and right. everything about it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know, maybe we can talk about some of the words and how they came about. Like what this border hopper means. This idea of border hopping really talks to the partnership aspect you know first obviously geographically just we hopped the border yeah. to get here so she's from Sicily I'm from Hungary and you know we kind of continue to be inspired by our past obviously and our culture that we left behind but also you know people who leave their place they will continue to leave and go elsewhere so we kind of like to do that just keep going traveling, being inspired by other places, conducting study abroad programs elsewhere. She took students to Rome, Japan. Japan. And you took them too, to Sicily Rome. too. Oh, Sicily, yeah, yeah. Sicily, Sicily too. Motherland. And I took some students to Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, which some of those places were new to me too. Wow. So, so we kind of keep this um, foreignness as a part of our office and appeal and source of inspiration, but also this idea of border hopping the discipline, you know, that we're not like just architects, not that the just, there's a lot to architecture, but that we, that we work on different scales. We keep continue to be inspired by food, art. I have an art history background. Actually, my first degree was in art history. Donna has a bit of a fashion background. I have a passion for making clothes, but not really an education in it. We get inspired by yeah, so many from, other things. Yeah, some, you know, graphic design is also a big drive to our practice. We practice graphic design with the deep understanding that we're not trained in it. So every time we have to show something to a graphic designer, we're trying not to <laughs> let the the page go. <laughs> you know, we all done to it tightly and we, we we try to read a lot and look at examples and like look up to a lot of graphic designers. Some of them are very good friends. Jessica Fleischman, April Griman, Juliette Berlock, we yeah. love them. We kind of like hop on the border of the discipline and we just use it humbly, you know, the way we can. Mm -hmm. But yeah, art, fashion. So product design. You know, we use it to test ideas because architecture is like such a long-term endeavor and you always need to bring on the third partner of the client like it's kind of a way of us controlling a little bit what we're doing and test some new ideas and realize them and show them 
because you know people just want to see what is it that you're talking about and also just the idea that we do have different backgrounds and different strengths and we work on every project together so we don't divide up the project both of our inputs kind of coalesce into something new that wouldn't have happened if only she did it or only mm-hmm. i did it that's kind of why this like border hopping is so important That's true. I like that because I don't know that I can articulate what the differences are quite yet. Almost like, you know, when you have your parents and you're going to ask, give something <laughs> right, and right. you know which one to ask. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like, I know which one to ask what. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if That's you guys have talent. noticed. <laughs> no, I didn't. We'll pay attention from now on. <laughs> like a marriage right like working with a partner it's like a different kind it's an of affair marriage. <laughs> it's an affair it's not it's a marriage yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know we have the tendency of being promiscuous right let's just say it okay <laughs> we like to collaborate like yeah. one thing I, i think both boy and i are not shy to admit to is that we like to ask for help so Boy and I are Clutter Cup, and this is the nucleus of the collaboration, but there is Marcy. On occasion, we collaborate with a very dear friend of us, Samina Sitabkan. She's in the Bay Area. And whenever we can, we try to bring her in into a project. We have collaboration with Chris Oberly. Chris Oberly. And Paras Nanavati. You know, school um, connections, basically. Their careers went different ways, and it's just... It's nice to be able to call on people you know for their approach or their expertise on certain things that is different from yeah, ours. Yeah, or Jeff Garrett. Like, we yeah. are really yeah. blessed with, a, with a, a network of friends and colleagues who, who we really admire mm-hmm. and we, we like to work with. We mm-hmm. really believe that to, to keep ourselves informed and curious and active, you know, it's, it's nice to confront yourself with others. And, and for that, being more efficient and mm-hmm. more informed and... More inspired, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about more of the words? Do you want to say, well, I think Los Angeles is a word that we borrowed from uh, Rainer Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> And it's obvious because we elected the city to be our city, right? So we love it. We, <laughs> we, uh, we are apologists for it when it <laughs> needs it. I mean, it's funny because, you know, 10 years ago, this was our bonding experience was over Los Angeles, really. We did a project for the Frogtown Art Walk that was about the forgotten LA River and just in general celebrating the culture that exists in Los Angeles that it really wasn't getting very much credit for 10 years ago. Now is a different story. But I think 10 years ago, you really had to be more perceptive to see what was going on. You needed a guide. Culture is produced differently, enjoyed differently, disseminated differently, and I think that's what we loved about it, that you had to really scrounge for stuff and search, and you really had to get invested in the place to get something out of it. And that project was about that. Basically, we did a postcard project that we screen printed, single color in the garage. We just talked about the Los Angeles River, the plants, the animals, the places that exist along it that are actually really cool, but are not on the list of things to visit when you come to Los Angeles. We feel like this is definitely what cemented our friendship and bond and partnership. So it's an important aspect of the office to advocate for LA. Another word that, uh, to follow up with what Boya said is beauty scroungers. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, architects in general have this ability, I believe, or designers in general, to see the beauty where it's not very apparent. Mm-hmm. And so um, we did other projects about the city. Along the LA River, we celebrated places of production. There was a pickle factory. And so we spent hours in the pickle (laughs) factory taking photographs. And it's really amazing because it gave us all the high candy that we could possibly wish for. Modularity of the jars, the pickles, the the color, the patterns. We got to know amazing people who've been there for 30 years and gave us some pickles. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we ran into them at the last art walk and... They gave us some pickles again. (laughs) (laughs) So we made postcards to celebrate them. And then we had this um, installation in one of those modular pods for storage. And that was our uh, larger-than-life mailbox. So people 
annotated the postcards and then send them to themselves or to their families and getting to learn about this amazing neighborhood, which in addition to architects, in addition to artists and cabinet makers, also has this other um, people who have been in production for a long time. They just produce other things that are not as glamorous, like the, the airplane. Yeah. What was that? They had like an engine testing facility there. It was <laughs> called Aero Engines. It's gone. Actually, it was really interesting because this project was done like at the moment when all of these things were about to disappear because of the gentrification of the neighborhood. It was mainly an area of production. So the neighbors were used to the sound of like airplane engines being revved to the highest possible pitch every afternoon at 4 p.m. or whatever. And it was just like the clock of the neighborhood. I mean, we just found this so interesting. These are such, I don't know, maybe it's architecture porn, but to us it was just interesting to know about how things are still being made in the city. First of all, that there's industry. Our postcard series basically commemorated that. It was a series about the makers of Frogtown right. in like 2012, I think. And a few years later, it's very different now. The pickles yeah. are still there. The pickles are still there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Krugerman. Krugerman. Yeah. 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 And maybe one last keyword we could talk about is the tool totter. Yeah. Um, because at some point, Boy and I were selected to curate the Wedge Gallery uh, of Woodbury University. Uh -huh. So we decided to, in the four-month period, to cram as many exhibitions as we could. And workshops. And workshops. <laughs> Imagine the wedge is like a small gallery in an architecture school, and architecture students are sitting in their studios. Our number one mandate for being the curators of the wedge was like, get the students to come and see the shows. And the way you do that is offer food. Sure. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we basically gave them kind of like a preview of the workshops that were coming up, and hung on these kind of like origami folded plates on the walls pieces of cake to eat <laughs> at the that we baked, <laughs> that we baked. one by yeah. one <laughs> and we called the show have your wedge and eat it too so the students came and Eight. they kept coming so in any case at that time because we had the office that just started and then we had this um appointment as curators of the gallery so boy at the time was driving a station wagon volvo some 80s some 80s model okay. and i had a, a vintage chevrolet truck from the 60s that my girlfriend yeah. <laughs> lent me and we were always full of tools like we had a full-on you know workshop <laughs> installed in our cars and so we had every type of nail every wash <laughs> possible because we saw every every show we did yeah. basically the two of us we were so sick of like driving to the home depot so we became tool totters <laughs> <laughs> we were already tool totters to begin with we just had to kind of reveal it <laughs> <laughs> to this day we are very attached to making Whenever we get a chance, we at least prototype or produce or... I mean, I think it probably led to our attachment to construction administration. Yeah, which is also what that. we do yeah. with, the, with the other project that we have, the Mapa Porte, the, the project of bags and accessories were, that are also fabricated and assembled by hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're looking at all of these bags with maps on them or like... Um, also coming to mind is the Eames chair mm -hmm. with maps on it for yeah. um, LA Forum. For the LA Forum, yeah. So what is it about maps? Because a lot of your work is <laughs> about maps, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was also um, at the beginning of our friendship, of our collaboration. We always look at the city in terms of a map. Like you can't really get to know Los Angeles if you don't have a map. I, at least when I moved here, it was pre-Navigator. So you still had that book in the back of your Thomas car. Brothers. Thomas Brothers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and also we start talking about the city as this place where maybe there are not very many landmarks in a proper sense of the word, like you can have in Paris or in Rome. Landmarks are created by each one of us because you live in a certain neighborhood and you like this specific cafe or you remember like a series of jacarandas that bloom in May and change that neighborhood in a certain way or the landmark could be um, a fast food place, right? right. So, um, so we were talking about these landmarks and how they have different meanings for people. Mm -hmm. But also maps seem to be 
a type of abstract drawing that most people can relate to. We participated in a couple of craft fairs and all these things. The maps were just like a graphic design element that really communicated with people. And people would love finding their where they lived on the map or their favorite places. Or if we put something funny like a cat that maybe was a neighborhood cat. <laughs> it, it was a connector. It really was. We just found like it builds community. So we started building this collection of neighborhood maps that were thematic. Some of them were more geographic. Some of them were less. I love that stuff that you guys do. I remember digging through it and being like, it's so cool that someone would come into your neighborhood and be like, here's this sort of art show or whatever, some interactive event. And you asked people what they would imagine on the map, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was like, that's amazing. I wish things actually started that way, (laughs) you know, like, because the community matters, you know, like what they envision. It was always a good conversation starter. So we kind of happened upon it by accident with our first project. And then we just realized that it was really working. And we just ran with it. Actually, the first one who asked us to contribute a cultural map to the LA Forum was Matthew Gillis. And he asked us to create a centerfold for the Los Angeles Forum newsletter. And at the time, we created this map of Los Angeles, and we looked into the Los Angeles Forum activities and its influence in terms of um, generating culture. So we look at a lot of projects that they initiated, funded, sponsored, and try to extract some keywords or concepts that they were promoting, and we disseminated them through the city. The way we did that was to run searches on Google about, and we would just put the keyword and see mm. what would pop up on the map. <laughs> and then we painstakingly put, um, like we tried to create like a legend of symbols. Some of them were architectural practices, some of them were more design-oriented restaurants. And this is how that first map came about. Similarly, we, we worked with the Red Cat with a uh-huh. similar um, process. When the Los Angeles Forum was preparing to celebrate their 30-year anniversary, called us to say that they were really intrigued by our centerfold and they wanted to transpose it on Modernica case studies chair. So we tweaked the map a little bit to be a little bit more pertinent to this 30-year anniversary. So we look at the people that they honor throughout mm-hmm. the 30 years. And then that brought us to a very exciting moment <laughs> in our career of, of actually going to the Modernica factory and uh, collaborating with them and seeing how the chairs are produced. Mm. Uh, and that was one of the highlights, yeah. I think, <laughs> of our experience uh, as makers or designers. designers. It was really exciting. Yeah, and talk about like a piece of memorabilia. It's amazing that holds a piece of LA history and is a cherished piece yeah. of the house, you know, the modern household. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what you're talking about with the maps connecting people a lot of the objects that you create also seem like along that same, for example, the dinner with the menus and then the oh, like, yeah. <laughs> ticket or the postcards, yeah. you offered something to people and they were able to keep them as memories of the event. You know, yeah. it becomes a longer attachment to an object. Can you talk a little more about that? You know, nowadays there's so many things that are digital or only exist kind of in the ether, but physical things people still have attachment to them or kind of like a renewed attachment to them and a lot of these things are they kind of take a long time to explain what the project is doing because there's so many layers to it for example the one that we did with thank you for coming which was a how do we describe it i think they describe themselves as a space for art slash restaurant yeah they are in <laughs> atwater village uh-huh. it's a collective they're very interesting people at the time they were inviting artists or writers like creatives from many different walk of life yeah. to use a cliche here the only mandate was to use mm-hmm. food as a material yeah and we saw an affinity because you know architectures i mean it traffics in reality in materials in experiences that are visceral and personal. So this experience was basically highlighting the idea of how like color in your environment would influence your experience. So we conceived of a dinner with some accessories that the participants would have to pick the food based on color. 
we had some pointers so that people wouldn't get a food that they would be allergic to or something. Sure. But the, the menu was described in terms of like sensory experience of color mainly. So people would have to pick something yellow, something green, something red, Pink. rather than the actual ingredients or the preparation or any of that. Um, based on what they picked, the experience would be highlighted with a screen printed placemat that would be in the same color. And then as the dinner progressed, these placemats were placed on the wall behind the people that ate, so it would contribute to the larger environment that they were sitting in. And basically, the whole experience of the dinner, they would not know what they ate other than how they experienced it. You know, people can obviously figure out ingredients based on their palate and tasting, etc., but they wouldn't really know. And the foods we picked were not really familiar to like an American, like a typical American audience. Like we picked from some Sicilian dishes, Sicilian some Hungarian dishes. dishes. Some Hungarian dishes. The Hungarian dishes were definitely quite obscure to people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then these placemats were basically made out of like Tyvek and we would fold them into envelopes and we would send the people the recipes for the foods that they ate after the event. So it was kind of like a many-layered process that was designed to highlight your sensory experience of eating with, you know, the architecture as a part of environment. Try to engage as many of your senses as possible, not to kind of reduce things to photographs or, you know, tweets, whatever, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever yeah. people do. But also the idea yeah. of, the, of the giveaway is to kind of create a community. The community of people who were there at yeah. the thank you for coming yeah. dinner, which was called Blind Date, yeah. or to the Red Cat Gala, for which we mm -hmm. designed the environment in 2015, invited by the director at the time, Ruta Service, in which we not only designed the environment of the basically the main theater where the gala dinner occurred, but we also were tasked to produce some giveaways for the guests. And so... In a way, these giveaways are always conceived to somewhat reflect the institution that invited us to collaborate with them. Again, the Red Cat, they're like at the forefront of experimental culture. So to honor them as creative culture, but also to, to create a community between all the people who attended, who go home with a giveaway, which is in this case, a portion of a map. So we created these objects that were like prisms on the table and they were folded maps, but really what they meant, all those symbols that you see that are screen printed on the translucent material, they're really keywords that we found in the shows that Ruth created for, organized for the Red Cat. And, you know, maybe just in completely like plain terms, basically, The Donors Gala is about raising money for the running of the institution. And each table costs a certain amount. And the people who sit around the table are a bit of a community, you know, during that dinner. And they pay a certain amount for the table. So these giveaways were a slice of one map that corresponded to each person that sat at the table. And it was kind of like their part in this supporting, in the, institution. supporting the institution, supporting the culture yeah. of a city. But they didn't have the full map unless you they didn't have the full map. put it together with yeah. everyone at the table. Yes, correct. So the idea is always the community. I think the postcard series was conceived the same way, that it worked as a series. So you always feel connected to others that participated, which celebrates the event and celebrates this idea that this city is communal. So how do you decide what projects to take on because it you know not every project is gonna be like right. the red cat yeah true. <laughs> yeah. yeah it seems like we we haven't talked about our our more kind of conventional projects all the projects are amazing and they inspire yeah. us but we do have architectural projects in the more conventional sense of the term so some some projects found us And our hope and something that is happening more and more recently is that what we put out with the self-initiated projects, what Boya talked about, the map, the postcard projects, the dinner projects, the curation of the wedge gallery, mm -hmm. I think 
highlight our approach to the discipline and hopefully, like it's happening a little bit more in recent times, they attract the type of projects that we, that we wish for. And not to say that there are not more architectural projects, like we do have custom lessons projects, we have some commercial projects, we have some collaborations with yeah. artists. And actually, I mean, these earlier projects, I think, helped us maybe... I mean, by now we have more requests than we can say yes to. Our original motto was say yes to everything. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but try not to let it completely define the practice, right? So we... I think the fact that we, in a way, put so much down on the table with these self-initiated projects initially helped us define ourselves without too much outside pressure for the projects to define us. And I think we're blessed with a, quite a number of residential projects that are amazing with mm -hmm. clients with great vision and collaborative spirit and, um, and ones that kind of speak to our strengths and our interests. I mean, we could talk about that one project as an illustration. It almost fits with our word pairs, too, because we called ourselves space stitchers at first because, because of both of us's background in a little bit in fashion, but also because we started with these Mapaporte wearable projects, which kind of translated into a unique approach to the custom residential projects you really get to work closely with the clients. I mean, you learn a lot about how they imagine their daily life in the houses that they build. Mm -hmm. And we feel that this background of almost like tailoring spaces in terms of the space stitching is really, is a really good fit to working with the client. On this project, the owner is um, a director. A director, yeah. It's really interesting because he sees the whole project as a series of unfolding storyboard frames, <laughs> which is actually interesting for yeah. us because, you know, when, you're, when you have such a close relationship with somebody, you kind of mold to their way of seeing things and your working methodology can change to accommodate mm -hmm. that way of looking at things. And also you kind of think about ways that architecture can really serve their vision and their imagination and their dream, you mm -hmm. know, for their home. Because for a lot of people, you know, building their home is like a dream that is maybe like the biggest investment that they're going to make. So, you know, in this case, we feel like we're really kind of, there's an existing mid-century modern house on the lot that you see on the top. Mm -hmm. And our mandate is to add to that as well as add another um, separate place further down um, the property. The property has a great view of the Silver Lake Reservoir, as well as a really nice property with kind of like wild landscaping on it. And we kind of like try to keep the character of the original site with all the interventions and additional square footage on it and kind of like stitch it all together into a coherent whole that the owner can kind of imagine mm -hmm. existing in, you know, like at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., where are they going to be? Where are they going to be with their friends, you know? And it's an interesting experience for us. And we have, I think because of our background and interest in working at different scales, we have the ability to address a way of imagining the project that is easier for the owner to connect with yeah. um, during the process because no one really knows what it's going to be like until it's built. Right. And you have to use whatever uh, tools you have to kind of help them imagine. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about approaching the architecture almost like in their language of their discipline. Mm -hmm. So like accessing a home from like a storyboard isn't necessarily how an architect would just approach a project, mm -hmm. but it makes a lot of sense in experiencing something. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. We think that a lot of the of the work of the architect is the one of a translator. You know, on one end, there is us trained in a discipline the way 
we know it. And then there is uh, an increasing number of people who are architectural amateurs, not amateurs, sorry, that's not in the Italian way, the lovers, like architectural, passionate of architecture, who understand architecture very well, but they just bring in their experience of their understanding of, uh, you know, they tweak the discipline a little bit and they see it under their point of view, in this case, a very cinematic way, like a series of views, right? So for us, who are looking at the project in a holistic way, you know, as, as he talks, we're thinking about how much is it going to cost, you know, <laughs> yeah. how we're going to get by that code requirement, you know. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting relationship and we, we really love the process of working on this type of projects as well as others. And then zooming out, we also conceive of these projects as like one particle in the, in the body of the city. So we really feel that responsibility. So it can't be about ego. It has to be about what makes sense, what is beautiful, what is harmonic, what makes sense for that site. You know, the building is going to be there hopefully past our time. And we think that architecture ultimately, and this is one of the things we really connect with Boya, it's almost a social service, or at least this is what it should be. It's a place for people to live and operate in. And, you know, maybe because architects are usually hired, at least at our level, by private owners, the city shouldn't be like a sequence of privately owned properties, each one with their own personality, but they should all contribute to the city as, a, as an organism. So that <laughs> development that we were talking about at the beginning in downtown, uh -huh. it just really clashes with the soul of Los Angeles. If the city is left in the, in the hand of a bunch of developers who employ whatever style they want, out of their time, you know, faking the detail, then the city becomes a pastiche. So mm -hmm. architecture has a bigger responsibility. The building that somebody builds is part of my view, part of your view, part of your everyday experience of the city. So it might become somebody's landmark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how we started that conversation. It's like the view belongs to everybody, you know, not just the homeowner who owns that parcel. But yeah, that's so like in contrast to the economics of the way things are mm -hmm. built. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about it all? I'm not knowing anything about architecture when yeah. that thing was built. I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I understand the convenience that it provides for. I think it's mostly non-Angelinos that live there. You know, I don't know who lives there, but it has a pool, it has a spa, it has this, it has, right. you know, so they put all of that. And so like the outside almost, I think for people who don't know anything about design or, or history, it's new construction, you know, like there's some people, you know, like I know a, a lot of family members, you know, they love new construction, you know, so it almost doesn't even matter, you know, like they don't understand why I like to live in old buildings, right? you know, mm -hmm. like what, or in a loft, you know, that has exposed things you know they're like when are they gonna put the ceiling, the ceiling <laughs> in, you know like they just don't get it you know so um yeah but I've always thought it was right really bad like it's new construction but it's not the industrial modern look yeah. so that it appeals to somebody yeah totally totally yeah. but it's very confusing right it's confusing looking and now obviously working with them and having conversations about it I'm like oh okay now I'm understanding why it was confusing for me you know like why mm -hmm. I don't like it you know because coming from some sort of design background you know you're just like I can't pinpoint why this is wrong but right. it looks it really wrong, wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, we don't particularly have anything against like a large development. What we are against is the perpetuation of and the creation of this like hybrid yeah. architectural style. I can't even call them I architectural you, style. You it's a pastiche. Postcard nostalgia simulacrum. Yeah, <laughs> nostalgia simulacrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is why I'm particularly upset because it's just so deceiving. And leads people to believe that that's good enough. I don't particularly have it against a developer who maybe just shows his bad taste and his desire to make as much money as possible. But I blame the city. I remember listening to a segment on the radio about how do we attract more tourists to Los Angeles? Well, let's try to bring into the conversation architects. You know, it is about architecture. It is about how beautiful, how nice a city feels like. How many people talk about Place de Vosges in, in Paris and what it is? It's just like how beautiful the sunset is perceiving the plaza. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so the same apartment building, the same number of units could be built for the developer, but maybe some more guidelines could be imposed upon them to make sure that the city becomes something that is more than just this one individual's ego and desire to make themselves rich. That's it. That's my pet peeve. That's, that's, that's not a soapbox. That's good. <laughs> but I like what you said about it being like, you know, the city has a responsibility because I don't know how this works, you know, but you're right. And, you know, the people that are making those decisions, like when you you took me to that meeting, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, those people are making decisions. I'm like, who are they? And what's their background? You know, how did they get there? And are they architects? Do they have a design background? You know, so what meeting was that? What was that city hall? Um, oh yeah, we just, we went to a public hearing. Oh okay. About whatever was on the agenda for that day, one of which was the ADU ordinance. Oh yeah. But they also discussed a couple of developments around the city. It was super interesting. Yeah. It was so interesting. It was really cool. But it made you know inspired me. I was like, oh maybe that's the direction you know I should go in. Is like go and infiltrate in the city you know since i have a design background or you know yeah i think overall it would be nice to see architects have more of a voice in the identity of the city is that why you're involved with la forum or like what other avenues does that take for you guys yeah i think la forum just connecting Mm -hmm. in general with the public because we realized that the only way to have architects have more of a voice is to, is to be present, you know, in the community more, as opposed to just talking amongst ourselves, mm-hmm. because in a way that's kind of preaching to the choir. But it's also teaching, I think, yeah. in a way, you know, to, this is something that I learned from my mentor, who was Levis Woods. And he instilled in all his students this um, urgency of teaching. What he said to us that made a lot of sense at the time is we need to keep producing a generation of architects who cares about the role of architecture for humanity. And I wouldn't have thought about teaching until I heard him. I didn't think I was qualified or I could ever be qualified to teach. But that really put me on a mission to um, make as many students as possible understand that the role of an architect goes beyond yourself. I think what pushed Boy and I in the first place to, to get out of the office and talk to, to people, to the community, was exactly that, to try to get a perspective that is not the one of the discipline. The discipline should be for the people, should be for everybody. Yeah, so that put us on a direction. Hopefully we will have the time and maybe we're a little bit guilty of not finding the time nowadays because we have more and more projects in the office. That's so true. I was teaching before and this is the first year I'm not in a while just because <laughs> it's, it's so busy. But it feels a little sad that I'm not doing it. Yeah, actually, in our experience teaching, we learn more during a semester than, than we probably teach. <laughs> just because we are exposed to all your colleagues and see what they're up to. And, you know, just by sitting in a crate... It really gives you a perspective of how everybody reacts to that same design, to that mm-hmm. same presentation, and it really keeps us connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marcy, what do you? What is your perspective on architects and the profession? I think that architects are the most creative people. If I would do it all over again, you know, if I was, you know, 18 and trying to figure out what to do, I would probably go and be an architect and then go into fashion, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. I find architects to be so conceptual and so creative. I mean, I just love listening to some of the stuff, you know, some of the projects that they've done. I'm like, oh, I wish I was there. You know, like I wish, I wish I could eat a color, you know, yeah. pick a food by a color or, <laughs> you know, there's like some of the pictures that they have with those postcards. I'm like, oh, I wish I was there. Architects create experiences. You know, it's more than just a design. It's further than that. You know, it's a, the idea of creating an experience to me is so fascinating. Like I just have never even thought of that, you know, because I concentrate on creating a piece, an item that can be styled with something else or, you know, like can be interpreted by somebody else, you know, but to create an experience is like, it's like a, that's like on the level of a, like a Walt Disney, you know, like that's pretty crazy, you know, it's wild. So yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of architects. <laughs> I idolize architects maybe. <laughs> I don't see any negatives. So 
We'll, we'll give you a list later. <laughs> <laughs> so you're mentioning pairs of of names, like puns and two things together. Claret cup. <laughs> what, what, like, where did that come from? So claret cup is actually the flower of a, a cactus that grows in the desert. And only blooms once a year for a very brief time. The plant itself is really kind of generic looking. And then all of a sudden in the desert, um, it blooms. It's like amazing, beautiful red flower. And that's a colored cup. And so <laughs> I think we had a list of names and we, when we wanted to name the practice and we were thinking, okay, we want to do something abstract and we don't want the classic like Buying as yes, Kuzma architecture, something like that. and also we, we, we just didn't want to use the word architecture. And so we like this idea of a flower that only blooms once a year in an otherwise very utilitarian-looking plant. We don't have like a style a priori, like that we say, okay, we're going to do like right curves or, mm-hmm. or like dynamic. We just think we're going to work with the client. We're going to make a beautiful, a beautiful building, hopefully that services purpose and so somehow this carrot cup flower spoke to us in terms of something beautiful moments that comes up yeah moments in... of magic from a utilitarian looking plant <laughs> and really we're running by friends we had a long list of names and, <laughs> and carrot cup seems to get the most hits <laughs> it's not an easy thing to spell on the phone or yeah. any of those things but plus it has a second meaning which we like yeah. Right. Yeah. Vino. <laughs> yeah. It's vino wine. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know, like we, we, we are affectionate. We understand that maybe the name is not the most catching or like later we understood that there was some repercussion <laughs> to making a name that way. Like, I think if we had more of a, like a strategy for an identity. And since then, occasionally we find, uh, we have a, a, a running list of, names for projects that could mean something or like name of future companies that we're going to open <laughs> that do slightly different things but still in the <laughs> we have ideas for the next 50 years hopefully we're still going to be together <laughs> by then you guys are definitely idea factory <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of the XXLA Architects podcast featuring the women of Claret Cup and Mappa Porte Boyana Banyas Donatella Kusma and Marcy Krant. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. You can see photos of Boya, Donna, and Marcy, images of their projects, and find links to the Claret Cup and Mapaporte website online at xx-la.com or follow me on social media at XXLA Podcast. If you want to get notified with upcoming events and new episodes, sign up for my new email newsletter by visiting xx-la.com and just entering your information. Thanks for listening.